0: Today we'll be speaking from Ezekiel 24, and we'll be reading the whole chapter. This passage is a very weighty passage, so please follow along with me on either your Bibles or your phones. Ezekiel 24, starting from verse 1. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, write the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day, and utter a parable to the rebellious house, and say to them, Thus says the Lord, Set on the pot, set it on, pour in water also, put in the pieces of meat, all the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with choice bones, take the choicest ones of the flock, pile the logs under it, boil in well, seethe also with bones in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it, and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice, for the blood she has shed is in her midst. She put it on the bare rock, she did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust. To rouse my wrath, to take vengeance, I have set on the bare rock the blood she has shed, that it may not be covered. Therefore, thus says the Lord Woe to the bloody city. I also will make the pile great. Heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, mix in the spices and let the bones be burnt up. Then set it empty upon the coals that it may become hot and its copper may burn, that its uncleanliness may be melted in it, its corrosion consumed. She has wearied herself with toil. Its abundant corrosion does not go out of it, into the fire with its corrosion. On the account of your unclean lewdness, because I have cleansed you and you would not cleanse from your uncleanliness, you shall not be cleansed any more till I have satisfied my fury upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. The will of the Lord came to me, son of man. Behold, I am about to take the light of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and make your, put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I poked to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And on And The next morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us these things mean for us that you are acting thus? Then I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me, Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul, and your sons and your daughters, whom you left behind, shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done, you shall not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men. Your turban shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus says Ezekiel, be to you a sign. According to all he has done, you shall do. When this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory the light of their eyes and their souls desire and also their sons and daughters on that day a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news on that day your mouth will be open to the fugitive and you shall speak and be no longer mute so you'll be assigned to them and they will know that i am the lord this is the word of the lord
1: Stephen, I'm one of the pastors of the church, along with Ben, who is floating around the church somewhere. Uh, I bumped into him downstairs uh, just a little bit before. Come on. Here we go. Firstly, for those who don't know, uh, it's Father's Day here in Brisbane, um, and Queensland, Australia. Uh, So a big happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Um, I uh, had the uh, kind of uh, welcome, was welcomed with breakfast this morning, and the kids charred me with gifts. Uh, One of my favorite things was um, the kids uh, did these kind of A4 craft sheets. Uh, and Steph laminated them. Uh, and then Jaden did one which had this kind of checklist of uh, what is a dad. Uh, you know, dad is big, he's cuddly, he's lovable. Uh, the one box he didn't tick was cool. <laughs> so I'm going to talk to you, Jaden, about that afterwards. Sorry. Uh, but so a big happy Father's Day to everyone out there. Spend, spend some time with your dad today, give him a call, drop him a message. Uh, I recognize too that um, being Father's Day, We recognize as a church that uh, there are some within our church who desire and long to be fathers, who want to be fathers. And for various reasons, uh, God has ordained uh, not yet. Uh, And so there is a struggle there. We recognize that struggle. We recognize too that sometimes uh, there are those among us who have wrestled with uh, poor relationships with our fathers. Uh, And so Father's Day is a bitter reminder of that. Uh, All fatherhood stems ultimately and is a ref- should be a reflection of God's fatherhood to us. And so hopefully today we'll rejoice in that. Uh, today, though, it would be big and heavy and deep, as you probably would have heard from the reading. Uh, and so especially if you're new here uh, today, I hope you'll see uh, a couple of things. One, uh, we haven't just merely chosen this passage on a whim. Uh, this is a passage that we're working through because we're working through the, uh, the book of Ezekiel, and now we've come to chapter 24 in this part. And so uh, I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open with you uh, so we're, as we look at that together. A couple other quick announcements before we begin. Uh, if you've downloaded the outline uh, and uh, you're used to taking notes on the outline, point 2C, speech restored, I'm going to actually throw that right at the very end. So I'm going to skip that one and then right, come back to that right at the very end. I hope it makes sense. Uh, At the end of today. And very quickly as well, let me just announce the results as well from the extraordinary general meeting that was held on Zoom uh, last Sunday night. Uh, Our brother Randy uh, has been confirmed as the third pastor of our church, the executive pastor, so congratulations to Randy. It was an overwhelming vote uh, in favour of that, and so we're so glad. This is the first time, I think, in our church's history we've had three pastors, uh, and even within this particular role. So I'm really excited to welcome Randy on board. He's going to be officially beginning in October, but still feel free to call him Pastor Randy for now. Um, And uh, on the 10th of October, we're going to have a commissioning service. On the 10th of October, we're also hoping to have a combined all-in service. So we did that at Easter. We rented out Centenary State High School's uh, hall. And so we're hoping that uh, as we can all gather together as one big church family to celebrate that time together, it'll be a great time to celebrate Randy's commissioning, as well as the end of the Ezekiel sermon series and all the heaviness that we've been looking at. Uh, It's going to be a fantastic passage that week as well. I'm looking forward to preaching that. At the EGM as well, uh, the church voted uh, formally to approve uh, the joining of our church to the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. Uh, Now, that doesn't affect our day-to-day running, but it does mean that Ben I, the the pastoral team, uh, have a network of other like-minded churches to tap into, support, prayer, encouragement with others, and so we're looking forward to being a part of that network as well. For now, though, let me pray. As we head into this very big and heavy sermon, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you do speak to us and you speak all kinds of words. You give words of encouragement, words to lift up, and you speak words that have great and incredible weight. And today is this day. So we ask for your Spirit's help. We plead for the Holy Spirit. Help us understand your word. Help us to receive this. Help us to feel the weight of everything that is said. That we may then embrace it for then we will see everything that Jesus has accomplished on the cross for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll help me by your spirit to speak clearly and passionately from this passage as I ought. And we pray that you'll help us to embrace these things and hear these things for your glory and ultimately for our deep rooted joy. In Jesus' name, amen. The older I grow, the more I realize that funerals are better for me than weddings. Now don't get me wrong, I love weddings and I want to be clear that I'm very glad and enjoy the privilege of being a part of so many different weddings that have happened in our church and will continue to happen in our church. Weddings are all about new beginnings, new starts. They are usually filled with optimism, joy and happiness and laughter and I love those things but as I get older I realize more and more that funerals are better for my heart. Funerals are a big reality check. They tell you that life is temporary. Life here on earth does not last forever. Every funeral that I've been to has had some sort of slideshow showing the life of the person who has been from birth to youth to old age. Funerals teach you that youth disappears, that wrinkles will form, that grey hairs will dominate, that health will slowly be chipped away. Funerals teach you about loss. The sudden, unexpected loss of a loved one is, is hard, but so is that general loss of relationship, the, the loss of something vital and important and precious to you. A few months ago, I was at a funeral and I heard the words of the son giving the eulogy. And he said, Dad, I'm going to miss you terribly. And I don't know what I'll do without you. Yesterday, I heard another son speak to his mum Mum, who is going to be there now when your grandkids need help? When my brother needs help? It's hard to watch and to to hear those moments. It's hard to hear those moments because when you hear those lines, you can feel a heaviness in the air. And today's passage, likewise, will be hard to hear in part. We're going to read about judgment again and about loss. And there is a heaviness in this passage that we need to feel. Now, like all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, we start our passage in chapter 24, verse 1. uh, We are given a very specific date, the date of the ninth year of the 10th month on the 10th day. We read that on this day, Nebuchadnezzar has had enough of Zedekiah's rebellion, and he has marched his forces to surround Jerusalem. And because of what we know about the dates and the time, Nebuchadnezzar's army arrives on our calendar date of January 15th, 587 BC. In verse 2, we read that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, laid siege to Jerusalem. A siege is when you surround the city with your army. The idea is that you cut off supplies going in and people coming out and you basically just camp out there to starve the city into surrender. We know from the book of two kings and other sources that the siege lasted for 30 months. Eventually the city of Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed. And we will read about that soon enough in chapter 33 of Ezekiel. But the thing to note here is that this is the moment. All the judgment stuff that we've been reading about over the past 23 chapters has now arrived. The arrival of the armies of Babylon means the end has begun. And to explain how terrible this moment is, Ezekiel is given another parable in verse 3. A parable about food. But notice that it's not just any food parable it's a master chef parable have a look with me at verse 3 and utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them thus says the lord god set on the pot set it on pour in water also put it in put in it the pieces of meat all the good pieces the thigh and the shoulder fill it with choice bones take the choicest ones of the flock pile the logs under it boil it see that also its bones in it now let me explain why this is a master chef parable uh, first you'll notice the ingredients list right this list includes some of the best ingredients you see, you see see the things he used to put into the pot in verse 4 pieces of meat all the good pieces the thigh and the shoulder also, verse 5, the choices of the flock. Now, he's not calling for any ordinary beef, no chuck steak that you got from Woolies. He wants A5 grade Wagyu beef to go into this pot. This is not going to be your average midweek dinner. This is not a Wednesday night. This is Michelin star dining. And I love how God mentions the thigh cut because everybody knows that the best cut in the KFC bucket is the thigh. Not none of this dry breast business, right? When you, get to, when you go through drive-through and you order your bucket and you go, can I please have some extra thigh pieces? You know what you're getting, all right? And we also have the shoulder cut going in as well. So we know that this is going to be a nice, low, and slow cook. We're told that bones are being popped in to add depth of flavor, right? To seed the bones in the, at the end of verse 5 is another way of saying slow simmer. Right? Any good cook knows that when you simmer bones in a recipe like this for that long, you're gonna add this rich, deep flavor to the stew. Is your mouth watering yet? You ready for lunch? You're looking at your clock? All right, let me race through this, okay? Hang on, let me wipe up my drool from the pulpit here too. <laughs> my mouth just watered. <laughs> See, with every description of this feast in the pot, the anticipation levels rise. So you gotta remember, Meat in our world is so readily abundant, right? It's such a common thing. You just go to the supermarket and it's all there fresh and ready. Uh, It might not always be cheap, but lots of people can have regular access to it. And I'm willing to bet that most people here eat meat at least once a day in their meals, if not twice, three times? Wow. Okay. Uh, But meat in Ezekiel's day and in the time of Jesus as well, it was reserved for special occasions, Right, Feast, celebrations, your day-to-day meal was actually mostly vegetarian. Not by choice, right? It's not some vegan diet they were going through, but because meat was just so, so, so expensive. Now, what's going on here? Babylon has just arrived. It's surrounded Jerusalem, and God is sharing with them this MasterChef recipe. Well, as the cook goes on, we begin to smell something going rotten. Have a look at verse 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. See, the pot that they are cooking in is filled with corrosion. Everything inside the pot is unclean. There is rust. There is chemical residue. Uh, See in the middle of verse 6, the corrosion has not gone out of it. The pot is unable to be cleaned. And so at the end of verse 6, piece after piece of this meat, of this stew is taken out, but no choice is made for it. Because after every bit, bit after bit of this feast is coming out, but every morsel of this high-grade meat is being pulled out, but it's gone rotten. It's foul. It smells sour. It's putrid, A whiff of it is enough to make you want to puke. You can't eat any of it. It's completely gone wrong, uh, gone rotten. So, what's happened here? Verse 7 makes the connection. For the blood she has shed in her midst, she put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust. It seems here in this parable, the pot represents God's people. They were supposed to be the choicest at all, of all the people on the face of the earth, but they have become utterly foul and rotten. Why? One of the reasons, of the many reasons we read so far, but one of the reasons here is because of this shedding of blood in verses 7 to 8. They have shed blood, and in particular, they have not covered it up. Now, To get a sense of why this is such an evil thing, you've got to go back to Leviticus chapter 17. Now there, Moses says this, that if you kill an animal to be eaten, you notice there in the highlighted bit, and the blood pours out on the ground, you are to cover that blood with earth. Why? Verse 14, because the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. The shedding of blood was serious to God. God allowed animals to be eaten, but he would not allow the consuming of blood because blood was was symbolic of life. Shedding blood on the ground was to treat life with contempt. Israel were not just shedding blood, but they were leaving it exposed on bare rock, which is a deliberate act of sacrilege. Leaving it exposed on rock was in some ways to advertise what you have done. Now, here's the thing. I don't think it's just the animal sacrifices and these, these animals that they're eating that they're leaving out, the blood that's being left out. See, within the context of the book, within the context of the Old Testament narratives around this time period and in the context of their injustice and their idolatry, the blood spilt in these passages is very well most likely referring to the blood of innocent people shed by wicked leaders of the city and to the sacrifice of their children. The shed blood left on the rock is most likely a reference to the deliberate, wicked and evil sins of killing innocent people and children. And so like the blood of Abel which cried out from the ground, the blood of these, the exposed blood of these victims is crying out to God for justice. And justice they shall receive. Verse 8 to rouse my wrath, to take vengeance, I have set on the bare rock the blood she has shed that it may not be covered. God is going to return the wickedness upon their heads. The blood that they poured out will be remembered by God and in return their blood will be poured out. God will avenge the innocent of their lives. And then, returning to the cooking metaphor, God says in verses nine to twelve that it's time to cook the city. In verse ten, He will heap up the logs, kindle the fire, cook the ingredients up. But see in verse eleven that he's not making a tasty stew; He is going to let the pot burn and burn and burn. Now, anyone who has burnt their food knows what this is like, right? The entire dish. When you sometimes it's hard to know that you've burnt your food because when you but when you taste it, there is this strong, bitter burntness that runs through the entire thing, and it's just gone wrong, right? It's inedible now. And the blackness of the bottom of the pot takes forever to scrub clean. The description here in these verses is that God is going to burn everything in that pot to the point that their uncleanness will melt away. Everything will be treated by fire until they are clean. But notice in verse 12, its abundant corruption does not go out of it. Israel cannot be made clean because they are too far gone. And so, verse 13, on account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed anymore till I have satisfied my fury upon you. There can be no scarier words to hear from God. I will not clean you from your uncleanness. I will not forgive you. Your time is up. You will not be forgiven anymore until I have satisfied my fury and my wrath upon you. Only when they have finally gone into exile will the justice of God be satisfied and God will do it. You see again and again and again the the punctuation, the exclamation in verse 14. And he says, I am the Lord. I have spoken, it shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. You are getting what you deserve. There is no more mercy. There is no more grace. It is finished. Your time is up. The armies are here. Your inevitable judgment has arrived and you can do nothing to prevent it. Take a deep breath because things are about to get heavier. God speaks again to Ezekiel. Now after 23 chapters of unrelenting judgment with Babylon, now at the door of Jerusalem, surely some good news, a silver lining, some hope needs to be given. The word of the Lord came to me again, Ezekiel, and Ezekiel must be hoping for some small hope to share. But then he hears this. Verse 16. Son of man, behold... I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning And at evening, my wife died. And on the next morning, I did as I was commanded. Ezekiel hears from God. And God says, I will take away your wife. The delight of his eyes. A a woman he has held, he has cherished. He has become one flesh with. And the craziness of the past 23 chapters, she's been there supporting him and trusting God with him. And now God is going to take her away. I'm very conscious of the fact that today is Father's Day in Australia because it was five years ago on Father's Day that beloved brother and son and father, Philbert Tan, a member of our church, lost his life. Philbert was a big brother to a lot of us. And the pain of that moment hit many in our church like few others. I remember that phone call Sunday night. Steve, my dad has died. What? The pain of losing a loved one is a pain that many of us know all too well. Ezekiel is about 35 years old at this point. A young man told that his beloved wife of his youth will die. And remember, Ezekiel is muted. He cannot speak. If you knew that you only had one more evening with your loved ones, you would want to express to them everything about how much they have meant to you, how much you love them, and you would want to say goodbye. In God's grace. I know of some people here who have lost fathers and mothers, and they've had that opportunity to say goodbye. But Ezekiel couldn't do that either. He had a word from God, "I am going to take her away," and he couldn't even say goodbye one last time. And then he cannot mourn her death. He is told by God that he cannot grieve her death. He Cannot weep. He cannot even shed a tear. I was at a funeral yesterday remembering the sister from Tung, our Chinese church, Su Si, a wonderful woman who loves children and who was actively serving in Kids Church for years. And when her son and her daughter in law came up to give their eulogies, they shed tears. And that was right. They loved her. And we could see that love expressed in their tears. But for Ezekiel, no, God will not let him. Instead, he is to put on a turban and put on his shoes in verse 17. Instead of clothes of mourning, he's to put on clothes for celebration. And so she dies and he complies. Why? Why? Even in the quiet moments at nighttime, as he lays his head down and memories of his beloved come flooding back into his mind, he is only allowed to sigh softly to himself. Why? This is another visual prophecy for the people. Ezekiel had to perform many of these. We've seen some already, and this is his most personal and poignant. The life of a prophet is lived in total devotion and service to God. Nothing in his life was off limits. God is the one who gives life and takes it away, and it is within his divine providence to act how he desires. And so Ezekiel learns here that there is nothing that God cannot ask of him. Now, the silence of Ezekiel is not for Ezekiel's benefit. Do not think for a moment that God is saying it is wrong to grieve and to shed a tear for your lost loved ones. The silence of Ezekiel is not for his benefit, but for the benefit of the people. In verse 19, they pick up that something is desperately wrong with this situation. They knew Ezekiel. They knew how much he loved his wife. They saw the affection that they had for each other. And now they see his stoic, emotionless reaction to her death That's completely out of place. What's going on? So God tells them what's going on. Just as I took away the delight of Ezekiel's eyes, so I am going to take away the delight of your eyes. Have a look with me in verse 20. Then I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary. The pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul and your sons and your daughters, whom you left behind, shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall, you shall not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men. Your turban shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus shall Ezekiel be a sign. According to all that he has done, you shall do. And when this comes to pass, then you will know that I am the Lord God. The delight of their eyes here is the temple, the place where God and man met together in harmony. God is going to destroy his temple, his sanctuary. He calls it the pride of their power. It's what they thought they could trust in. Get this. The temple was their functional idol. They believed that since they had this building, that God would not let anyone harm them. So long as they had the building and the building stood, they could do whatever they wanted. You see, instead of trusting the presence of God inside that building, they trusted the bricks and the mortar. Can you imagine if we were so filled with pride that we said, hey, look, look at our building. Look at this building. As long as this building stands, God will never let this church fail. It was their functional idol. And he calls it the yearning of their souls. See, when it is gone, when it was gone, when they would, then they would yearn and desire for it again. The desire to be in God's presence would become insatiable. And even their sons and their daughters, the children they had left behind uh, as they were taken off in the first exile would fall by the sword. This is a, a picture of utter devastation to come. And when all of that happens, Ezekiel says in verse 22, that when you hear about this, you will be like me. You shall do as I have done. The delight of your eyes will be taken from you, but you will not mourn and you will not grieve. Remember that Ezekiel was with the first wave of the exiles in Babylon. When the news of the temple's destruction reaches them, they cannot publicly mourn, they cannot gather to grieve. The judgment and destruction will be devastating and swift, that even their grief will be overwhelmed. And all they can do is sit and rot in their sins groaning quietly to one another and when all of that comes to pass then they will know that Yahweh is Lord and quite often when we read the Bible on our own or in Bible study we rightly ask the question what what do I do with this what practical application do I take away from this You know, the book of Ezekiel so far has has challenged quite a few things. It's asked us whether we've repented of our sin. It's asked asked us to identify the idols in our lives, the functional saviors that we all have. It's called us to fall down in awe and worship of God. And on occasion, it's primarily spoken to our hearts. And today is another occasion. You see in this long downward spiral, this long downward slide into judgment and sin. Today we've seen another aspect of this bad news. The weight of it. Ezekiel 24 has told us two things: that the inevitable judgment of Jerusalem has arrived. And the Master Chef parable reminded us there was nothing they could do, in Israel, nothing that Israel could do about it. And in the second half, we've seen that this judgment will completely overwhelm their grief, that they will be unable to mourn or grieve in the same way that Ezekiel was withheld from grieving the loss of his beloved wife. The loss of the temple to Israel was a deeply devastating moment, and the depth of that pain and grief can only be compared to losing the life of your dearest loved one. And yet, The temple in Jerusalem wasn't an end in of itself. It wasn't meant to last forever. As with everything in the Old Testament, it pointed forward to something greater. In the same way that an approaching shadow gives way to the person walking towards you, the temple was a shadow of a greater reality to come. Now, by the time of Jesus, right, we're going to read a bit later on in chapter 33 of Ezekiel that the temple is destroyed. By the time of Jesus, the temple gets rebuilt, sort of. It's kind of like a junior version. It's much smaller, right? And Jesus pays a visit to this temple in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 2, and what he sees makes him mad. It makes him furious. He's angry that God's house of worship has been turned into a den of robbers. People have set up stalls for animal purchases. Money changers were there as well, setting up their stores, and they were hiking up their prices to take advantage of people coming into the temple. The temple had become a place to take advantage of people. And so in his righteous anger, Jesus goes through that temple, tossing the tables over, whipping and chasing out the moneylenders. This commotion causes the Jews to confront him and listen to what Jesus has to say about this temple that they were in. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see there how Jesus says that his body is the temple. That Old Testament temple, even the temple that they were standing in, was a shadow of the true temple to come. Because in Jesus was the place where man and God met together in perfect harmony. And then more than that, Jesus was the delight in the eyes of those for those who had faith. For the rejected Samaritan woman who was engaged in a life-changing conversation with Jesus. For Zacchaeus who not only gave up his corrupt ways but gladly repaid everyone who ever extorted him because he met Jesus. For the little children who had to dodge the disciples in order to get to Jesus and sit on his lap. the sinners and the tax collectors that he ate with to the sinful woman who wiped his feet with her tears and kissed them over and over and over again there was something about Jesus that just delighted them everywhere he went crowds thronged and I don't think it was just for the healings because for those who had ears to hear Jesus was an irresistible magnet drawing all sorts of people to him as you read the gospels your heart has to be moved by Jesus. When we see his compassion, when we see how tenderly he dealt with the humble and repentant sinners, there was no man in history ever like him. And so when we fast forward to the cross, have we lost or never experienced that profound sense of loss? A sense of grief at his death. The women who attended Bloom uh, a few weekends ago would know this story. Um, We had a moment of experiencing this profound sense of loss when we were at home not too long ago. One of the great times that we have as our family at home together is to read the Bible as a family. I don't get to do it every single night, uh, but I love it when I do. Now you know, I'm not trying to paint a picture that it's all rainbows and and uh, doves when we read the Bible together sometimes it's like you know sit up uh, a bit like that right? um, but it's a cherished time that we have together and so a few months ago when we were reading our Bible the children's Bible we were going through and we returned to the familiar story of the cross and we read the chapter we were reminded of Jesus rejection and death I could see my youngest daughter Ellie beginning to get sad she crawled next to mummy she was visibly upset. So I asked her, what's wrong, Ellie? And she said, I'm just sad. Are you sad that Jesus died, I asked? And when I asked that question, the tears gently burst forth. And she said, yes. And we tried to comfort her. We tried to remind her that Jesus did rise from the dead. And then afterwards, I was reflecting when was the last time that I felt the weight of Jesus' death on the cross for me? When was the last time I cried because of what Jesus had to go through for me? We just saw Ezekiel go through something, some, uh, t- something terribly weighty. And he was restricted from openly grieving that moment. Yet here we are. Free with our expressions, but lacking grief? Maybe it's because we jump too quickly from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. But why do we do that? Is it because we don't like to dwell on the death of Jesus and why he died? He died taking our judgment. We all have a corrosion that is inescapable. If God was only a God of justice, then he would do to us what he did to Israel. He would let the pot burn until his wrath was satisfied. Jesus wasn't just dying to forgive our sins and wash them clean. As he hung on that cross, as the cuts and the lacerations on his body created a constant and loud symphony of pain, as his joints were painfully stretched out of place, and as the nails screamed agony in his hands and feet, he did all of that and took the judgment we deserve. The inevitable judgment that we deserve for our sins, Jesus took upon himself. The wrath of God which poured out in white hot anger against Israel is a wrath that is rightly pointed at us. And Jesus took the full brunt of God's wrath. His body experienced the totality of God's fiery anger. And then, as our Saviour weakly looks up to heaven... Every muscle and fiber of his being totally spent and unable to move from the pain and exhaustion. And with his last gasp of breath, he says, It is finished. He bows his head and he dies. The delight of heaven is lost. The true temple of God is lifeless. And the scene at the foot of the cross is silent. There is no public mourning. There is no funeral. There is no wake. There is no opportunity to say goodbye. Maybe today is a good day, whether it be your first time or your 1,000th time, to feel the weight of what Jesus has done for us, to see and experience this moment for what it really is, the darkest moment history has ever experienced. It's a day that we must experience because only when we see and experience the depth of the darkness of Friday can we truly receive how wonderful Sunday is. Well, at the start I mentioned that I was going to come back to verses 25 to 27 at the end. And so when you come back to Ezekiel 24 here, chapter 24, and you look at verse 25 to 26, uh, we see something else. On the day when the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem falls, as God explains, on that day when God takes away the joy and glory of Israel, the the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, when he wipes out even their children, someone will escape, a fugitive, a fugitive from the destruction. He will escape in time and run day and night until he gets to Babylon with the news. And when that fugitive arrives, something will change for Ezekiel. And not just for him personally, it will actually completely change the entire book of Ezekiel. Come with me to verse 27. On that day, your mouth will be open to the fugitive, and you shall speak and no longer be no longer mute. So you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. See, when that fugitive runs up and shares the news of Jerusalem's fall, Ezekiel's mutedness will be lifted. He will be able to speak again. We know that doesn't happen until chapter 33 of Ezekiel. And until then, Ezekiel will remain muted. But once his speech is restored, there will be more words to follow words of hope to God's chosen people everything is downhill until chapter 33 but after chapter 33 comes chapters 34 to 48 Ezekiel 24 is the heavy sadness and the grief and the mourning of Good Friday but Sunday is coming Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for this word. Help us to feel the weight of it, to feel the unbearable weight of the judgment that is falling upon your people, of a grief so overwhelming they cannot even cry out. Help us to feel this so that we can properly and rightly understand what Jesus has done for us. That we may see the cross in all of its glory. And then, Father, help us to linger at the cross, to see the scene. In our mind's eye, help us to not move on quickly, but to feel that weight of all that Jesus has done, the judgment he has taken for us. And help us to do this so that we might rightly see how great your grace and your mercy is. Father, do this for your glory and our deep, deep joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.